0: As spring approaches, some of you, uh, and to be clear, not me, uh, some of you will dust off your racing shoes and run in one of the area's many races. Uh, Whether it is the Race for Equal Justice, the Cherry Blossom 10-Miler, the St. Patty's Recovery Run, or another race that you can Google and find that there are just an inordinate number of races here in the D.C. area. Uh, Something uh, about these races, lacing up... uh, your shoes and traveling distances by foot that were really meant to be driven by car, um, it, it, it appeals to the masses around here. Um, one of the traits, though, that I'll admit is, is admirable about distance races is they all, they all take resolve to, to persevere and to finish. The, the mental anguish accompanied by physical and perhaps emotional exhaustion requires an admirable strength to overcome. Perhaps it's the glory at the end of the race, that keeps runners going. Or or maybe it's a friend running beside them, encouraging them on. Or maybe it's the promise that the race really does have a finish line uh, that gets runners through. Whatever the case may be, even non-runners can relate to pushing through a challenge. Uh, After all, the, the scriptures sometimes describe the Christian life as that of a race. Which makes me wonder... Uh, Christian, how are, how are you doing in this, this race? H- how are you doing in running the race of the Christian life? Um, do you f- sometimes find yourself growing, growing weary as you run this race? Uh, do you find yourself growing weary of pursuing the righteousness that the Lord Jesus Christ calls us to? Uh, were, there, were there days, perhaps even in this past week, um, when you were tempted to, to kind of give up and throw in the towel? Maybe there were days where you were just so weary that you set aside your Bible and prayer. I, I think that's going to happen in our lives as Christians. Life is, is hard. Uh, the struggle is not new. Did you know that the temptation to grow weary and give up is, is not a new problem for God's people? Sometimes we, we can feel like the thing that we are experiencing this moment nobody else has ever gone through before. But that's really not true. Uh, Christians have gone through this before. The people of God have gone through these struggles before. So what have God's people done in the past to encourage perseverance? One strategy, one among many, I think, is that the ancient people of God reminded themselves of God's present and future blessings upon his people. Psalm 112, the psalm that we're going to study together this morning, is a wisdom psalm. This psalm teaches us the path of wisdom. It is a a psalm in which the ancient people of God are reminded that God's favor, his blessing rests upon his people. This psalm holds out the blessings of God so that we might be spurred on to delight in God. Our perseverance is in part powered by God's promises. Therefore, we need to know his promises so that we can persevere. If we're going to make it through the, the marathon of life, We've got to know that there's a finish line, a a promised land before us. We have to know and be reassured that we have a God who goes with us and sustains us. And this is what we have the privilege of thinking about this morning, the favor of the Father upon those who fear him. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 112. Uh, If you're using one of the Bibles provided, then you should be able to find Psalm 112 beginning on page 509. 509. And while you're turning to Psalm 112, please allow me to kind of set the context of our study uh, this morning. The Psalms, as many of you know, were the prayer book, uh, the the hymn book of the ancient people of God. These were the songs that they sang to one another in corporate worship. These were the prayers they prayed at their bedsides. Uh, These poems were how they expressed their fears and failures to God. These were the ballads through which they confessed their sins. And express their confidence in God's mercy. These were their anthems of joy and hope that God's Messiah would one day come and defeat sin and death. Psalm 112 is situated in a special place in this ancient hymn book. It's situated right after Psalm 111. Psalm 112 was placed right after Psalm 111, uh, not for numerical reasons, but because they're related. Both psalms are acrostic psalms. Uh, Both work through the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. They're related in another way. In Psalm 111, the, the righteous bless God. And in Psalm 112, God blesses the righteous. Let me just give you one example of that. If you take a look at Psalm 111, verse 3, you'll see that those who fear the Lord tell us that God's righteousness, it endures forever. And then in Psalm 112, verse 3, we're told the same about the man who fears the Lord that his righteousness endures forever. Perhaps what Psalm 112 is telling us is that the man who fears the Lord and delights in his commandments is being conformed to the image of the God he worships in Psalm 111. Psalm 112 is in many ways an exposition of the last verse of Psalm 111, just Peek your eyes up just one verse into Psalm 111. Look at verse 10 there. The psalmist writes, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. and All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Psalm 112 is an exposition of that verse and of the previous psalm in the life of the man who fears the Lord. So taking these kind of contextual uh, matters into consideration, this means that Psalm 112 is an explanation of what it looks like for the blessing of God to rest upon the righteous man in the whole of his life, right? This is what, it, what blessing looks like from A to Z in the life of the individual who fears the Lord. So let's read Psalm 112 now. Let me read Psalm 112. Follow along as I read. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm. "'Trusting in the Lord. "'His heart is steady. "'He will not be afraid "'until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. "'He has distributed freely. "'He has given to the poor. "'His righteousness endures forever. "'His horn is exalted in honor. "'The wicked man sees it and is angry. "'He gnashes his teeth and melts away. "'The desire of the wicked will perish.' Well, the whole point of this psalm is to further the fear of God. Uh, That's the response the psalmist wants to evoke as uh, his readers take up this psalm and and think about it. He wants God's people to, to read this psalm and to walk away recommitted to fearing God and delighting in his commandments. The psalmist is calling us to consider how God blesses the righteous and how he punishes the wicked, as you can see at the end of verse 10. He's implicitly posing this question to us. Do you fear God? And then he's saying to us, look, consider the life of the man who does fear God. Look at his happy life. And look at the end, the wicked meet. Which will you choose? Will you fear God? And all of this he does to encourage the people of God not to grow weary in well-doing, but to persevere with faith in God and in his promises. And since this is an acrostic of 22 Hebrew letters, we'll study the psalm under 22 headings. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, We'll study the psalm under four. Some of you didn't think that was funny because you thought it was serious. Um, And you were afraid. Um, We'll study the psalm under four headings. The blessed man, the blessed man, the blessed promises, the blessed assurance, and the blessed outcome. Uh, Let's begin with our first point, the, the blessed man. We're going to take a look here at verse 1. And this is really the the fountainhead of everything that flows uh, in the remainder of the psalm. The blessed man. Take a look at verse 1 again. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Uh, Though the majority of this psalm is focused upon the man who is blessed, we must not forget that it begins with the praise of the one from whom all blessings flow. Though there is a sense in which the man who fears the Lord will be praised in this psalm, we must not lose sight of the fact that true worship-filled praise belongs to God and God alone. In fact, we can say that God deserves praise for how he deals with and blesses the man who fears him. God deals with his people, with all people, with generosity and justice. But he especially blesses his people. And just so you know, when I use the word man, I'm referring broadly to mankind. I'm using it, I'm using it broadly to refer to men and women. The, the characteristics of the righteous man in this psalm actually redound to God's praise. For they are but a dim reflection of God's generosity, justice, and goodness. And this raises a question. Have you praised God this week? At one level, uh, I think you can say yes. Can't you? I mean, you're here now. Sundays, the first day of the week. Uh, We have sung praise to God this morning. Have you praised God this week? Check, right? You've praised God. What about last week? Uh, What what about yesterday? There's always something that we can give thanks and praise to God for. So so let's make sure that we do. Uh, He deserves our praise and delights to receive it. Maybe uh, you need to conclude your day before you put your head on the pillow, uh, laying down, thinking about, What's something I can praise God for today? What's something I can give thanks to Him for? He deserves our praise, and He delights to receive it. God is the one who is praised, and God is the one who blesses. First one is actually put in the form of a beatitude. Uh, you can think of Jesus' uh, famous beatitudes in, his, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew five: "Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those." who hunger, Uh, blessed are the merciful, and and so on. Beatitudes, they they express more than being the recipient of blessing. They actually express the state of blessing. Uh, The man of verse 1 is not receiving blessing like the the high school graduate receives a diploma. Uh, The the man of verse 1, no, he's living in blessing. In fact, another fair translation of the word uh, blessed would actually be happy. Uh, Happy is the man who fears the Lord. Satisfied is the man who fears the Lord. Content, fulfilled, is the man who fears the Lord. So, who is really happy? Who really lives in happiness? Well, the psalmist gives one answer. The man who fears the Lord. That's kind of a funny way to put it. I mean, it's strange for our modern ears to hear that fear is related to happiness. Uh, Even that fear is how we live in happiness. In our day, we tend to think of fear as being solely related to dread, to being afraid of something or someone. However, in the Old Testament and in years gone by, uh, fear was often used in a positive sense. Here, fear is used in the sense of reverencing God, honoring God. Here, God is not loathed. He is loved. We fear God, so we run to Him, not away from Him. Fear in the Bible is often just another word for faith. Now, do you see what the psalmist is saying? He's saying this, happy is the man who, who loves, who, who honors, reveres, and trusts in God. That's who's really happy. That's who's really satisfied. That who, that's who is really living the fulfilled life. Those who have faith in God. Contrast this to the wicked at the end of the psalm. You'll take a look at verse 10 there. You'll see that the wicked are angry. They gnash their teeth. That's not, that's not a picture of somebody who's happy. Friends, true happiness, true blessedness, in the end, is found in fearing God. Now, it's important for us to understand how Hebrew poetry works. That's what we're reading. You're reading ancient Hebrew poetry. Because in verse 1, we have what's called a parallelism. Uh, that's where a poet says the same thing from, from two different angles. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. That's line one. And then there's a parallel line, uh, Blessed is the man who who greatly delights in his commandments. That's line two. Fearing the Lord and delighting in God's commandments are essentially saying the same thing. In fact, the the second line is, in some ways, building out our understanding of the first line. Think of it like this. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. And what I mean by that is, blessed is the man who greatly delights in his commandments. Sometimes, and and sadly, this this is unusual for us. Being the independent creatures that we are, uh, we don't like commandments, uh, much less delight in them. Uh, this tells us what the psalmist is, is talking about. It actually has to do with our hearts, right? This delight, it speaks to our hearts. Sometimes we're even prone to read the Bible and say to ourselves, you know, I'm not under law. I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. And there's a certain sense in which that's true. We're, we're not saved by the law. We're saved by grace. And yet the promises of Scripture tell us that when we are born again, when we come to true and saving faith in Jesus Christ, God is pleased to write his law upon our hearts. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. If you truly love the Lord, you love his commands. If you don't love God's commandments, then you may not love God. God's commandments tell us, What Jesus has done for us. They guard us from foolishness, error, and sin. They guard us from harming others and from harming ourselves. They guide us along the path of true righteousness. True, the law does not save us. It was never meant to save us. It was meant to be a generous and gracious gift of God. Think think about the Ten Commandments. What what does the preface to the Ten Commandments say in Exodus chapter 20? Well, the preface to the Ten Commandments is in these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Do you realize that the law of God begins with the love of God? It begins with grace. Before a single commandment is uttered, God effectively says, I saved you. I loved you. I love you. When you think of God's law, You should think of his love. In God's law, he says, I love you. And this is how you show love for me and the world. This is how you show the world that you love me. You set no other gods before me. Before no idol bow thy knee. Take not the name of God in vain. Nor dare the Sabbath day profane. That's how you show the world you love me. And this is how you show the world how to love one another. Give both thy parents honor due. Take heed that thou no murder do. Abstain from adultery which is unclean. Steal, steal not, though thou art poor and lean. Do not lie, but always say what is true. And covet not the things that don't belong to you. The man who fears the Lord wants to show the world the love of God. And show the world how to love others. Until you begin to think of the law as God's word words of love, you will have difficulty delighting in them. Until you begin to think of the law as embodying the righteousness of Jesus Christ, as revealing the character of your Savior, then you will have trouble delighting in it. When we read, when we read the law, we need to think, Jesus lived this. He lived this out of love for me. I'm saved because Jesus kept this law for me. And there's just one more thing that we need to reflect on concerning the blessed man, the psalmist did not merely say that the blessed man delights in God's commandments. The psalmist said that the blessed man greatly delights in God's commandments, and and I can't help but think of how one preacher um, expressed this with regard to Jesus. He pointed out that Jesus said in John chapter four, verse thirty four, "My food is to do the will of Him who sent me." Jesus wanted to keep God's commands. He greatly delighted. In them, For Jesus, God's commands were like a great feast. Not that he had to eat, but that he got to eat. Too often we treat God's commands like children who come to the table and complain, rather than children who come to the table and celebrate. Do you think about God's word in this way? It, is it something you, you have to read? Or, or is it something you get to read, that you want to read? I pray that we would each have a hunger and thirst for God's word. We cannot live by bread alone. We also need the food of God's word. Uh, and, and if I may, I'd, I'd love to invite you to pick up a copy of Jeff Robson's little book. It looks like this. It's really little. See how thin that is? You probably can't even see it from the back. But there it is. It's really small. It's a great little book. It's entitled The Book of Books. It's short. It's readable, which is a plus. Um, but he also gives some encouragement to those who are daunted by the sheer size of the Bible. Uh, it, it's a big book. It can be intimidating. In the back, he has uh, a six-month reading plan. If you don't you know, know where to start in your Bible, or don't have an idea of how you want to begin. Uh, that that six month reading plan might be of help to you. It won't take you all the way through the Bible, but it will take you through some really important passages. Uh, pick up a copy; they're they're free. They're in the book nook. We've got a ton of them. We just gave them to uh, all of the, those in the high school class. Um, so find one in the book nook and encourage you to pick it up and read it. And in the meantime, uh, please join me in in praying that God would please. To give us as a congregation, to give us a a growing fear of him and a growing delight in his commandments. Pray that God would make us a congregation of blessed, of happy men and women who love him and long to know him more through his word. Because that's where he reveals himself to us, in and through his word. Well, having considered the the blessed man, let's turn now and consider uh, our second point, blessed promises. And as we consider the blessed promises Uh, Read Psalm 112, verses 2 to 6. Follow along as I read, beginning there in verse 2. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous... Will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. Now, if you'll recall, I mentioned earlier that this uh, psalm is a Hebrew acrostic, which means that the author of this poem is trying to express the the blessedness or or happiness of the man who fears the Lord in common and yet comprehensive terms. Right, uh, blessing from A to Z. What we're reading about here is blessing from beginning to end. And and you'll notice that though there are clearly physical and material blessings in view here, um, spiritual blessings are also present. Uh, These are the blessed promises we see in these verses. Let me just summarize them quickly. The man who fears the Lord is blessed in his house and home, materially and spiritually. And in turn, he blesses others materially and spiritually. All that he has is from God, And all that he does is for God, because his hope and his heart are grounded in God. He will never be moved. And what I find interesting about these verses is how uh, blessings do not merely flow to the man, but from the man to others. In many ways, he is a conduit of God's blessing. His offspring are mighty. And while that would certainly be a great blessing to him, it was actually a great blessing to the nation. See, in the Old Testament, mighty men are warriors for God and his king. Just think of David's mighty men at the end of 2 Samuel. His offspring are not only mighty men, but they're also upright, righteous men. They imitate their father and his righteousness. And note carefully that we're seeing the apparently material or physical blessings paired and paralleled by spiritual blessings. The blessings of verse 3 are similar to those of verse 2. And that they're related to his home and to his legacy. Notice here again how the second statement of the parallelism qualifies the first. When the author declares that wealth and riches are in his house, we need to understand that um, the multivalent kind of form the word house will often take in the Old Testament. Uh, The word house can mean your your home, uh, but very often it refers to your lineage. So uh, Solomon was of the house of David. Uh, Jesus was of the house of David. Wealth and riches may endure throughout the history of his house, but more importantly, the righteousness of his house will endure forever. For the writers of ancient Hebrew literature, material blessing and spiritual blessing went hand in hand. They viewed this as generally true. Generally true. I'm going to emphasize generally. Um, The righteous generally received material blessing, and this was a sign of God's favor. To be sure... The people of Israel did not believe that material blessing and spiritual blessing always went hand in hand. We can see that in this very psalm. If you look down to verse 7, you'll see that bad times are going to come. There are other psalms that lament, really, the prosperity of the wicked in contrast to the suffering of the righteous. You see that in Psalm 73. Or we can think of Job, right? Uh, Job suffered, yet he was righteous. Sometimes... We may even say very often, the righteous suffer. Sometimes riches are taken away. Nevertheless, generally speaking, under the old covenant, it was thought that material wealth was a sign of divine favor and a reward for those who walked with God. But what about us? What about we who live under the new covenant? Can we expect material wealth as believers? And here we have to recognize the general nature ...of Hebrew wisdom. We should not take these promises as absolute. In other words, this is, this is not an equation. right? Fear of God plus delight in His commandments... ...equals fancy things. No, that's not how this works. Uh, fear of God plus delight in His commandments... ...does not equal fancy things. Nor does fear of God plus delight in His commandments... ...equal believing children. Uh, fear of God and delight in His commandments... ...may may be followed by some of these things. Uh, For example, those who fear God and delight in His commandments will work unto His glory, uh, which means that they will often work hard. Uh, Often, though not always, that means they'll be rewarded for their labors. Those who fear God and delight in His commandments will be just in their dealings, which often, though not always, will mean that others will want to do business with them. Moreover, true fear of God does not spring out of love of earthly pleasures, but out of love of Him. And as those living in the era of the new covenant, we have in our possession the biographies of Jesus and the letters of the New Testament writers. And as we think about these promises here in the Old Testament uh, and think about appropriating them and applying them in our lives, we need to do so in light of Jesus and what the New Testament writers say about him. You know, Jesus never really promised his followers health, wealth, and happiness. If you read through his teaching, actually, more often than not, Jesus promised suffering for those who follow him. And As we think about these promises of blessing, we need to think about what the apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Uh, listen to what Paul said there about God. He said, uh, about God and his promises. he said, and Jesus, he said, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. All the promises of God find their yes in Christ. So as we think about applying promises of wealth and riches of verse 2, we need to think about the truth that wealth and riches as believers actually are already in our house. We belong to the house of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, we have real riches in glory. We have the riches of Christ's righteousness. Perhaps when we come into the glory of heaven, the Lord in his kindness will be pleased to show us the spiritual offspring that we have had on this earth. Perhaps we will see the fruit uh, he was pleased to bear through our lives in raising up mighty men and women of God who were faithful followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. These promises will come true for believers in Jesus Christ. But it will not be because of the believer, but because of Jesus. He has our wealth. This man of Psalm 112 clearly walked with God, for he is like God. He reflects God's image to the world. And who has done that? The Lord Jesus has done that. In verse 4, we're told that he is gracious, merciful, and righteous, which is what we're told of God in Psalm 111, verses 3 and 4. And what is more, he is the light that dawns in the darkness for the upright. And what happened when Jesus came onto the scene in Matthew's gospel, right? Matthew quotes from Isaiah saying, a light has dawned. He has come. The man who fears God is actually the implied subject of this phrase, right? He is the light that dawns in the darkness for the upright. The man who fears God is is actually who that's speaking of. Fearing God is a blessing and comfort To your fellow believers, when the word of God dwells in you richly, you can comfort other brothers and sisters in Christ. You can bring light into a a dark moment, uh, into someone's heart and life. Not only are you happy and blessed when you delight in God's commandments, but, but you become a blessing to others. Think back over the course of your Christian life. Just pause and think about those believers who have had a profound impact in your life for a moment. Haven't other brothers and sisters in Christ instructed you and taught you God's word? Haven't there been times when you you haven't really understood a passage of scripture uh, and they've shed light and increased your understanding? Or perhaps there was a time when you were struggling hard with sin or discouragement that darkness seemed to be weighing on you in your life? Did the Lord use other believers to help you into the light, help lead you into the light and encourage you to walk in his way? Do you want to be a light dawning in the darkness? I hope you do. I think that's part of what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, to bring His light to this dark world. If you want to be a light dawning in the darkness, fear God and keep His commandments. If you do fear God and delight in His commandments, then you will not only hold on to your resor- you will not hold on to your resources as though they're your ultimate source of safety and security. Isn't that what's underneath verse 5 there, right? What keeps us from being generous? What keeps us from being generous and lending to others? Often, it's a fear of losing of what we have. Uh, You know, I don't really know that I've got enough to kind of help in this way. Which, by the way, all of those things that we have, all that we have, it's not even ours to begin with. Everything belongs to our Lord and God. We are simply His Stewards, and if the Lord has been pleased to bless your house, house with wealth and riches—I'm speaking materially here—then I think we need to think carefully. Perhaps it's even incumbent upon us to be generous and lend, especially uh, to your brothers and sisters in Christ. In Galatians chapter six, verse ten, Paul tells us that we have that that, that we should be generous as we have the opportunity. That we should do good, especially to those of the household of faith. We need to help our brothers and sisters who are in need. The Lord wants you to lean on Him, to trust in Him for your financial security. This also means not taking advantage of those whom you enter into economic arrangements with, which is the implication of the latter half of verse 5. And what we prayed about in our prayer of confession earlier this morning. Uh, This strikes me as a very practical way to positively Love your neighbor. See, love and justice actually go hand in hand. Dealing unjustly with our neighbor reveals that we don't love them, but hate them. Let's remember that those who we hire, that they have to eat and feed their families. Taking advantage of them can positively harm their ability to provide food for themselves and for others. We can and should give generously and lend. We can and should conduct our affairs with justice. Because our ultimate hope is not in money, but in the maker of all things. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul quotes this verse. We read it earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. You'll recall that Paul encourages believers to be generous, just as God is generous. The wealth that God has entrusted to us for a season is not solely for our benefit and pleasure. Whatever God has given to us, He has done so in order that we may meet the needs of fellow church members... And those in the broader society, as we have opportunity and ability to do so. Who around you is in need? Think about that. Ask yourself that question this week. Who around me is in need? Ask yourself, do I have the resources to meet that need? What's stopping me from doing so? You know, I'm I'm grateful that God has filled our church with generous and cheerful givers. Uh, Over the last several years as a congregation, you have provided for your fellow brothers and sisters and Christ in in marvelous ways. Through our Benevolence Fund, you have provided biblical counseling, medicine, food, and shelter for fellow members. You have helped a pastor whose possessions were lost in a flood. You have helped missionaries whose home was destroyed in a fire. Um, I give God praise to you. I give God uh, praise for you and for your generosity. And I want to urge you to keep giving cheerfully, generously, and sacrificially. The evil one, I think, would want us to be consumed with our wealth and begin trusting in it and and hoarding it. This is and will be a constant battle for us, I think. And the only way to fight against the impulses of greed is to give in to the godly impulses to be generous. When the Lord brings that to mind, pray carefully about it. We can and should be generous because our true treasure, our glorious inheritance, cannot be lost. These are the blessed promises. Uh, The man who fears the Lord is blessed in his house and home, materially and spiritually. And in turn, he blesses others materially and spiritually. The real promise is that he's a conduit of God's blessing. All that he has is from God and all that he does is for God. Because his hope and heart are grounded in God, he will never be moved. Which is what we need to turn and explore further in verses seven and nine. So let's turn and consider our, our third point, the blessed assurance. Let's read verses seven to nine now. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady, he will not be afraid. Until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He is distributed freely, he is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. With the opening of verse 7, we see that the one who fears God is not promised a life free of trials. Bad things will come, but his heart, his faith in God, is firm and fixed. This is the blessed assurance that though all around my soul gives way, he is all my hope and stay. Now notice this about the blessed man. It does not say that he is not shaken about. And in fact, I think we can assume that he will be shaken about. Right? We can assume that his life will be turned upside down and inside out. Perhaps even like Job, he can lose everything. Everything except his God. And our God is enough, isn't he? The blessed man's faith is firm and fixed because his God is firm and fixed. His God is immovable. He does not fear the future because he knows the one who holds the future? What is not shaken is his heart. Right? His heart is firm, which is to say he continues trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady, which is to say that he will not be afraid. He knows the end. Christian, don't you know the end of your story? Don't you know the end of the story of God's word and world? It's victory in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. The man who fears the Lord, he knows the end. Victory is certain. He knows that he will triumph over his enemies, his adversaries. It may look like certain defeat to everyone else around him. From time to time, it may even feel like defeat for him. But because he knows that the God who has called him is faithful, he will persevere in faith. How many testimonies have we known of brothers and sisters who have been faithful to persevere through extreme difficulty? Right? Whether they've faced cancer and they've thought to themselves, Lord, I know you're faithful. And their faith is firm. They are an incredible testimony and challenge to us, aren't they? What a, what a blessing that we may have seen brothers and sisters persevere in the, in the face of, of great difficulty. And not only this, but, but think about who is our ultimate example of this, right? Pause. Uh, and, and reflect with me on just how well this psalm describes the Lord Jesus Christ. Didn't the Lord Jesus know what lay before him? He knew that he was going to go to Jerusalem and die. He knew that before he got there. He knew that before he got on the road. He knew that he would be beaten, shamefully treated, spit upon, mocked, and killed. He told his disciples that that would happen. Nevertheless, he got on the road to Jerusalem because he also knew that death would not be the last word. He knew that he would look on tri- in, in triumph on his enemies and his adversaries. This is why he could entrust himself to the Father and say with his dying breath, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Three days after his brutal death on the cross... The Lord Jesus was raised from the grave. And the Apostle Paul tells us that it was through the cross that Jesus defeated all of his and our enemies. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul tells us that Jesus disarmed. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Triumphing over them, Paul says. Brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ we have sure victory Over the enemies of sin and death. There is going to be much that will assail us in this life. Even our greatest enemy, death, may come after us. But Jesus tells us that we may, that though we may die, yet shall we live. Brothers and sisters, don't you see, if you fear God, you have nothing to fear. Really and truly, if you fear God, you have nothing to fear. He is sovereign and good. He may use trials. He may use bad things to shape us, fit us, and ready us for heaven. And for that, we should actually give him praise. We should give him praise. Even trials are part of his goodness to us as they bring us to share in the sufferings of Christ. To know what our Savior went through for us. And to make us more like Jesus. We may hope and even ask God to change our circumstances. When you're in a trial, brothers and sisters, you can hope and ask God to change your circumstances. I think that is a legitimate and godly prayer. There's nothing sinful in hoping and asking God to change your circumstances. But we who fear the Lord, we entrust ourselves in the midst of these trials to God. We entrust ourselves to our good God, and we also ask Him, to change us through those circumstances. To bring glory to his name and to make us more like Jesus. It's interesting to me that the psalmist returns back to the theme of the blessed man's generosity to the poor in verse 9 there. It strikes me that he is well aware that what we do with our money reveals our hearts. Right? The, the blessed man is able to distribute freely. He's able to distribute generously. Because he's not trusting in what he can see. But in the one who sees, the one he sees with the eye of faith. Notice too that he, he is remembered and honored. Not because he possesses wealth. But because of what he does with his wealth. He shares it. He's not remembered because he has wealth. But because of how he used it to bless others. He trusts his God who owns it all. He is sure of his heavenly inheritance. And this leads us to our our final point, the blessed outcome. Blessed outcome. Take a look there at verse 10 again. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Here we are met with a blessed man's foil, the wicked man. What is it that he sees? What is it that makes him angry? Well, the wicked man sees the happy life of the blessed man and despises him. He hates God, and he hates God's people. He is bitter, and he is a brute. Thrashing and gnashing his teeth is all that he can do. And the reason is is that on the last day, God will vindicate his people in the sight of the nations. The blessed outcome, you see, is nothing less than the cosmic victory of Christ. And His people, because they're united to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, His people share in that victory with Him. The wicked had long thought that they would defeat God and His people. But in the end, they were utterly defeated. As one Christian observed, the sight of Christ in glory with His saints will, in an inexpressible manner, Torment the crucifiers of the one and the persecutors of the other. Note, too, that the psalm declares that the desire of the wicked will perish. They will not perish. The wicked will not perish. But their desire will. All of their strivings to put God's people underfoot will perish. They, on the other hand, will suffer for their sins for all eternity. God's people, however, will be received into endless joy. This is what the Lord Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, that the wicked will go away into endless punishment, Jesus says, but the righteous to endless joy. The blessed life begun in fearing the Lord and delighting in his commandments on earth will continue for all eternity. What will your end be? Will you choose futility, or will you choose to fear the Lord? Will you choose to despise God's commandments, or to delight in them, and so delight in Him? Friend, if you're here today, and you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the question that the Lord has set before you today through this psalm. Will you love Him, or will you loathe Him? Choose wisely. And choose in light of the end of the blessed man and in, the end, in light of the end of the wicked man. So, so how do you come to fear the Lord? Well, you come to fear the Lord by recognizing his grace and mercy revealed in Jesus Christ. Uh, though God made us, though he's the author of our lives and, and therefore has the authority to, and, and rights to express his authority over us, we have all rebelled against him. We have all spurned him in his commandments. We have all said, thanks, but, but no thanks, God. I'll rule my own life. I'm, I'm going to live my own way rather than your way. And that's just what sin is. It's, it's rebelling against God. Because of our rebellion against the good, righteous, and holy God, we all deserve to be eternally punished for our sin against the eternal God. But, but the good news of the Bible is that in His great love for sinners like us, God took on flesh in the person of Jesus. God came to rescue us from ourselves, from our fallen from our faulty, and from our futile ways. Jesus, the eternal Son and second person of the triune Godhead, came to live the life that we have not lived, the life of perfect fear of God the Father. He feared God and kept His commandments. And because He was fully man and fully God, He could do it as our perfect representative. Jesus also represented us. He stood in our place by dying on the cross and taking the punishment That our sins deserved. But that is not all. For three days after his death. God raised Jesus from the dead. Vindicating him. And proving to us all. That his life and death on behalf of repenting sinners. Was acceptable in God's sight. And now Jesus calls all of us to turn from our sins. And to fear him. To trust in him. Believing that he lived and died. And was raised from the grave. For the forgiveness of our sins. Friend you can come to fear God today. By turning from your sins, and placing your faith in Jesus. And if you want to know more about what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, to fear God, to delight in His commandments, to to know more about what it means to to follow this Lord Jesus, to receive the blessed outcome of enjoying God for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth, then please speak with a friend or family member that you came here with this morning. Uh, Come and find me at the door. I'd love to talk to you about this good news in Jesus Christ and the hope that we have in and through Him. As we conclude, I I want us to, to return to where we began. We began this morning by thinking about how the people of God can grow weary in our pursuit of righteousness. How we can grow weary running the race of the Christian life. We can grow tired of giving ourselves to the daily grind of faith, of fearing the Lord and delighting in His commandments brothers and sisters i invite you to consider again the wisdom that psalm 112 has to offer our gracious god here tells us that we are only happy when we are happy in him Uh, remember the final hope that he has set before you remember the world of love that awaits us all the world where we are no longer tempted to fear bad things Because in the new heavens and the new earth, all bad has been banished. Let's remember that Jesus has won for us an entrance into that world by living this psalm for us. In his kindness, he has made us his offspring forever. Through our faith union with him, we have become members of his house. He has shared with and showered upon us the riches of his righteousness. He is the light who has appeared in this dark world. He has been gracious and merciful to sinners like us. He has dealt generously with us, giving us gifts which we could never repay. He was never moved, firmly trusting in the Father all the way to his death and through his death. He is saving us, delivering us, and defending us from all of our enemies. And he is calling us home to his world of love. Though you may be weary as you live in this world, fear God and live for the next. Or as Jonathan Edwards so famously put it, And at the end of the world, when the church of Christ shall be settled in its last and most complete and its eternal state, yet then divine love shall not fail but shall be brought to its most glorious perfection in every individual member of the Ransom Church above. Then, in every heart, that love which now seems as but a spark shall be kindled to a bright and glowing flame, and every Ransom soul shall be, as it were, in a blaze of divine and holy love, and shall remain and grow in this glorious perfection and blessedness through all eternity. Fear the Lord and be happy now, for we will certainly be happy then. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this wisdom from your word. We pray and ask for the grace of your spirit to help us live and walk in your wisdom. To lean into the riches and the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Delighting in him each day and delighting that he kept your commands for us. Oh, Father, give us hearts full of love for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And give us hearts that increasingly long to be with him in heaven in that great world of love. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.